Isaiah 41, 8 through 10. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we um, turn to you now, and we want to attend to your presence in our midst by your word and spirit. And we trust that because you are near to us, you are not far off, and you are addressing us this morning, that you desire to save us and to heal us and to rescue us and to transform us. And so we humble ourselves before you and ask that you would do this work in us, that you would uh, draw us to faith, strengthen faith, clear up confusion, that you would disturb us in the ways that we need to be disturbed and that you would comfort us in the ways that we need to be comforted. We pray that you would do this um, for the sake of your name and in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So we've been in this series on the book of Isaiah now for a number of months. And remember, the, the goal of this series has been to get a fresh vision of who God is and what God is. And so we've, we've looked at various attributes of God and the character of God. Uh, a few weeks ago, we looked at this um, attribute of God, uh, or this characteristic of God's absolute sovereignty, that God is the creator and ruler of all things. And as the creator and ruler, he freely and unchangeably ordains all things that come to pass. Um, and so we've already kind of looked at that, but we're going to look at that same idea again today, but with a uh, sort of subset of that subject that relates to salvation, um, particularly the salvation of God's people. And so we're, we're going to be talking today about the freedom of God in election. Uh, and this, is a, this can be a very troubling and, and difficult and challenging or also a very comforting doctrine. Um, that we're going to talk about today. And, and we're, so essentially we're asking the question, why is anyone at all saved from sin and death? Why is anyone at all saved from sin and death? And, and uh, why in particular is this person saved rather than this person saved? How do we answer that question? Um, now on one level, we can answer that by saying it's because this person repents and believes in the gospel while others do not, right? That's, that's true. But ultimately, what we are going to see today is that um, it is God who wills, who will repent and believe. So I quoted the Westminster Confession uh, in previous weeks, chapter 3, section 1 on this, where it talks about God ordaining whatsoever comes to pass. And, and then it says, and yet, neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty of contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. 
and I'm sure that's abundantly clear to you right now what that's saying, right? Um, essentially, what it's saying is that, yes, God ordains all things that come to pass, and yet that does not violate um, the agency of individual creatures like you and I. In fact, God um, establishes the agency of creatures like you and I. And therefore, we really do truly act and make choices in accordance with what we want to do. We are willing creatures. And God's agency and ordaining of all things establishes our willing. God's sovereignty makes human willing possible. And our freedom then is not in competition with God, but rather enabled by God. And yet, this is still a very challenging idea, right? This is not an easy subject to um, think about. Uh, and you could say, well, God could have created a different world where things play out differently. Uh, and he created this world where there is real evil and real suffering. And so um, as you wrestle with this today and you think about this today, don't be surprised if you start feeling uh, angry, maybe a little bit, because it seems down in your bones like there might be something unjust about this situation. Or maybe it's just horrifying to you, just this idea that God is sovereign over all things, in particular, um, who is saved and rescued and who is not. And that might bring real fear to you for a moment, uh, that God has that sort of um, absolute sovereignty over all things. Or maybe it's just confusing. And as you um, listen to what um, our passage says, you just begin to feel some anxiety about this whole subject and about who God is. So I want to say before we get down into the weeds of it, that Christians differ about how they answer and, and wrestle with this subject. And um, so to be a member at Trinity, you don't have to fully agree with the way that we parse that out. We are a Presbyterian church, a Reformed church, and that means that we are in a tradition of understanding Scripture on this question in particular, in, an, in a particular way. And that's who we are, and that's why I'm going to teach this way. But you don't have to fully agree with all this or be confident about this in order to be a member here or to continue walking with us and wrestling, and it's okay to question and push on what we say. But this is what we believe Scripture teaches. Um, the other thing I want to say before we get too far into this is that the way that people hold this teaching is also important. And um, maybe you've seen this, that um, people who believe this sort of stuff uh, might get a little nasty. Uh, we have a term for this. It's called being in the cage stage of Calvinism. Um, now that might be, what are you talking about there? It, it essentially means when people sometimes come to learn about this doctrine and maybe even become convinced, convinced about it, um, it's sometimes wise to lock them in a cage uh, because they get obnoxious or, or obtuse or uh, self-assured or sometimes they get um, arrogant and lazy and presumptuous. And so uh, we need to think about how is this doctrine supposed to function in our lives? Uh, if it's producing this sort of way of being where everyone thinks you need to be locked in a cage somewhere, that is not how it's supposed to function. Okay, but the thing is, that doesn't mean it's untrue because all sorts of doctrines functionally are employed in unhelpful ways sometimes. So, for instance, we can talk about our doctrine of sin, um, that we are wholly and thoroughly distorted uh, because of sin. And that could lead some people to live with a sort of self-hatred. But that's not how that doctrine of sin is supposed to function in our lives. Uh, or uh, maybe another example, we could talk about the doctrine of God's love. And we could employ that in such a way that we deny the requirements of God's law, but that's not how that doctrine is supposed to function. Also, we can think about, for instance, that pastors have authority in a church. 
and yet that doctrine can be employed in a way to be domineering and uh, oppressive to people. And it's not the way that it's supposed to function. So doctrines are important to, to think through and get right, but we also have to think about the way that scripture employs those teachings. And thus that should shape the way that we, we embrace those and hold those and live those out. So today we're in chapter 41, and I've, I've given a little background before about this part of Scripture. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah is um, Isaiah prophesying and speaking the truth of God to the kings of Israel and Judah, to Uzziah and Jotham and Ahaz, and lastly to Hezekiah. And um, in all of this, there is brief but never really true repentance, and so Chapter 39 ends with essentially this looking to the time when God would come and take Israel into exile in Babylon. And then in chapter 40 through 55, God um, begins to speak through Isaiah to the future Israel that is in exile. So hundreds of years later, um, this message in Isaiah is meant to speak a message of comfort to Judah when they are enslaved and taken to a foreign land. And chapter 41, in particular, begins where God is sort of arguing with the nations and condemning them for their idolatry and silencing them for their foolishness in worshiping things that they've made. And then God turns and he begins to speak this word of assurance to Israel in verses 8 and following. And that's what we're going to focus on today as we look at God's electing love and God's purposes in election. So... Um, God's freedom in election, his electing love, and God's purposes in election. So let's look at verses 8 and 9 uh, to, to begin. And, and what we see here is that God sets his love upon Israel from among all the nations. He, he chooses Israel to be his people, and he sets his love upon them. It says in verse 8, You, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. So it begins with this phrase, but you, because as I mentioned a second ago, he was addressing the nations and now he turns to address Israel. And you notice there, um, he begins to rattle off the names of Israel. You see that? It kind of says, uh, Israel, Jacob, whom I've chosen, offspring of Abraham, my friend. Uh, he's sort of rattling off the names, and that's kind of a strange thing to do. Um, but we, we recognize that when we call someone by their full name, there's there's sort of power in that, and it kind of gets their attention, right? And we often... We often joke that people do that when the kids are in trouble, right? You know, they're, they're acting, they're not how they're supposed to, and the full name is listed out first, middle, and last, right? But this is a, a slightly different way of, of calling out all the names of God's son here. And it, it reminds me of um, like when a person is in deep despair or they've lost sight of who they are and they're, they're down on themselves and and someone comes and speaks their whole name to them to try to encourage them, to remind them who they are. That's what I see going on here, is um, God is, is telling Israel again of their story. And he's saying, you know, Israel, Jacob, uh, offspring of Abraham, the one I've called, my, uh, Abraham was my friend, the one I took from the ends of the earth. He's reminding them of their story. And he says, I have chosen you. That's the point of rattling off all these names. I have chosen you. And that means I have not cast you off. You're in exile, 
Things have been really bad, but I have not cast you off. And he's reminding them of the promise he made to Abraham that we read earlier in our service from chapter 12, where um, Abraham, who was living in Ur, this faraway land, God called him from the ends of the earth, from the farthest corner, he called Abraham and he made him a promise and saying that I am going to be your God. Right. And, um, and, and what God is doing here with Israel is he's reminding them that they've been called from the farthest corners of the earth before. And he's fully capable of doing that again when they're in exile. In fact, in the same place where he called Abraham, that's where they're in exile. And he's saying, I, I called you from there once. I can call you from there again. And he uses this word of election multiple times that he, they're chosen. He says that twice that he took them, that he called them. Right. And what, what he's saying then to them is that Israel, you may have screwed up. You may be in exile far from home. You may feel powerless, trapped, afraid. You may have given up all hope, but I have not cast you off. I have called you from Ur before, and I will do it again because I chose you, and nothing has changed that. God's free choice to set his redeeming love upon and to save a people from sin and death for everlasting life is what election means. That's what this doctrine is all about. God's free choice to set his love, his redeeming love on a people and to save them from sin and death for everlasting life. And so this electing love has a corporate dimension that God chooses a whole people. He chose Abraham, an individual, but he chose to make a great nation out of him. And this nation, Israel, is a people. And then even within Israel, God elects individuals that will be saved through this covenant that he makes with this whole nation. So there's a, a corporate and an, an individual dimension to this doctrine of election. And we see this explicitly connected in Romans chapter 9. If you want to read that later today, you can see the way that Paul makes the same sort of connection where God is choosing one of, he chooses Abraham, and then he chooses one of Abraham's son to be the son of promise, and then one of those sons and not the other. And, and God is setting his love upon someone, and his promises are, are continuing through history. Because God sets his love on one to, to save them. So election is not just a doctrine about God's people collectively. It's about giving salvation to individual people. Now, uh, this is where you start maybe getting a little disturbed, right? Um, but we need to think carefully about this. That we all acknowledge that God is sovereign in, in choosing to bless some people in more ways than other people, right? That, that God is free to bless to varying degrees, right? We, we just look around us every day and there are those who have been blessed with riches from birth and those who have been born into difficult circumstances. Uh, there are those who are blessed with beauty and those that are not. There are those who are born in comfort and those who are born in suffering. There are those who are born into lots of opportunity and others who are born with strict limits and uh, on their life that it's going to make it hard for them to go anywhere, right? And this is just a fact of creation. The God is creator. He brings people into the world. And, and there are varying degrees of blessings that people experience. And of course, the story of the Bible tells us that God chooses some people as a group and not others, right? This is what God did. He chose Jacob and not Esau, Isaac, not Ishmael, Abraham, not Laban. And he formed Israel out of all the nations of the earth to be his special people. And then even within Israel, we see God choosing particular people to have special roles, right? Moses and 
Aaron uh, are, have special roles in Israel and Joshua and all these different leaders. And even into the New Testament time, we have some people chosen to be apostles and others are chosen to be pastors and some are chosen to be mothers and some are chosen to be fathers and kings. And we can go on and on and on that God um, chooses people for particular roles. And so it really shouldn't surprise us that God chooses people to be redeemed, not because of anything they have done, not, not because of anything about them that makes them better than anybody else, but he sets his love on some people so that they might experience life from death. And you might be saying, well, that just sounds fundamentally unfair. That just sounds unfair that, that God would choose to save some and not others. How can he do that? Well, like I said, God gives good gifts to all people. Let's remember that. Life itself is a gift. The fact that God makes a person and gives them life is a good gift. And all the good things they experience in that life are good gifts from God. And so he's a generous God who freely gives to all people. And then he gives this gift of eternal life to some. That uh, all people have fallen into sin, and that means death has come into the world. And so everybody will lose the gift that God initially gave them, the gift of life. But then God gives a grace upon grace. He gives eternal life to some. He distributes his blessings in different measures. And again, you might say, well, that still seems unfair. But you have to remember there is no unfairness with gifts, right? That's just, that's the nature of a gift. There is no such thing about uh, unfairness with giving gifts. Gifts are not deserved, right? I suspect every single one of you who gives birthday gifts to some people don't give gifts for their birthdays to everyone. And we don't go around saying, that's not fair. Why didn't you give a gift to everyone you know, right? That, that, that's just not the way that um, we work. They're gifts. They're freely given. They're not deserved. And the fact that God has infinite power doesn't change this fact, that just because he could give gifts to all people does not mean he must give gifts to all people. So gifts are not a matter of justice, right? God does give everyone what they deserve, meaning he will pay people back for the way that they steward the life that he has given them. He is completely just. He will never punish anyone beyond what they deserve. He will never, um, he will never do evil to anyone. He always pays people back fairly. He will reward, he will punish. But God does show grace and mercy, and he is free to show as much grace and mercy as he wants to whoever he wants. Um, and so that, that's at the heart of the way that we understand redemption in Jesus Christ, right? That um, all people deserve death. All people deserve judgment. And God could have been just to just um, let all of creation uh, die and fall under his condemnation because of their sin. But he sent his son into the world to pay for the sins of his people. And so um, Jesus came into the world and he shows mercy and grace because Jesus bore the just penalty that we deserve on the cross. And then he rose again as God's way of saying he didn't die for his own sins. He died for the sins of other people. And God blesses and freely gives eternal life to all those who are united to Jesus Christ through faith. So he doesn't owe forgiveness to everyone. He offers forgiveness freely to all, and he sets that forgiving love on his chosen people. Now you might say, well, why doesn't God give everyone a chance to be forgiven? Why doesn't he give everyone a chance to be forgiven? But again, that's not the way forgiveness works. Forgiveness is a gift, right? It's, it's not a deserved thing. 
And no one believes that everyone has the same chance of forgiveness, not just Reformed Presbyterians. You might um, look at other traditions in the Christian faith and say, well, uh, they believe forgiveness is offered to all people. But we know that people have varying degrees of hearing the gospel, right? I mean, some people are born in places where they never hear the gospel. Some are born in places where they hardly ever hear the gospel. And some people are born in places where every witness to the gospel they see is is wicked and horrible and hypocritical and oppressive. And some people uh, encounter beautiful witnesses to the gospel. So there's, there's varying levels of witness to the truth of God's forgiveness, no matter what you believe about this question of election. The point I'm getting at here is that Scripture teaches that God is free. He is free to show his love and to set his love on people according to his own will and for his own purposes. Not everyone gets this gift. We all agree with that. Not everyone gets the gift of forgiveness. The question is why? Well, on one level, it's because God does not give the redeeming grace of faith to all people. Now, as you're hearing this, you might say, if this is true, then this is going to produce a lot of pride in people. It's going to make people feel justified in being violent towards other people because they've been chosen by God. That's the idea. But that is not the way this doctrine is supposed to work. Um, I mentioned earlier the cage stage. Why do people sometimes get really difficult to be around when they start wrestling with this question uh, and start believing this? Um, And I want to be clear, it's not because of what this teaches. It's actually because people, um, knowledge in general, puffs up, right? When you you have knowledge that other people don't have, uh, it tends to make us proud. And we like to show people we know more than them and Hold that over them. And so I would say that the the reason cage stage exists is because sometimes people feel like they've been let in on something that a lot of Christians don't know, and they feel puffed up about that. But the content of this knowledge, if you actually understand this doctrine of election, it breeds humility. Because what it tells us is that salvation is a gift all the way down to the bottom all the way through and through. Even our believing in Jesus is something that God has given us as a gift of grace. Um, If we don't believe this view of election, then ultimately I am wiser than someone else if I've believed the gospel and they haven't. I I can in some sense stand on my own wisdom for recognizing the truth of my need for forgiveness while this person didn't. That actually gives me a basis for some sort of pride and self exaltation over them. But if election is true, then then salvation is a gift all the way down to faith itself. Hearing the gospel is a gift. Believing it is a gift. Obeying God is a gift. Everything that I might do to know God and walk with him is a gift of grace that I didn't deserve and has nothing to do with my own wisdom or status or good works or anything like that. And so if we view this doctrine from the bottom, bottom rather than the top, it changes the way that this doctrine functions in our life. What God says to Israel here is that he chose them from the ends of the earth, from the farthest corners. And what he's saying there is, essentially, Israel, you were a nobody. You, you were a nothing in the world. You, were, you, were not, you weren't even a people. You were just a guy who couldn't have children. That's Abraham. And I set my love upon you, and I have made you this great nation. This is all a gift. You have nothing to boast about at all. He's placed his love on those at the bottom. In fact, friends, often, usually, this is the way the grace of God works. That God goes down to the bottom of society and sets his love on people. 
if we think about it as people of privilege who are already wealthy and comfortable, we think about being chosen by God, it just seems to reinforce our own sense of being great and successful and all that. But if we realize that throughout the Bible, God sets his love on those who are weaker and those who don't have status in the world. It's like what Paul says in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1. He says to his readers, not many of you were wise, powerful, or of noble birth. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. That is the way the doctrine of election works. That God sets his love on the people that this world doesn't think much of. And in fact, if you are great in this world, the only way you can receive the gospel is if you realize you have to get low and humble yourself and realize that all your accomplishments really mean nothing before God. You have to become low. You have to move towards those who are low. That is how this doctrine is supposed to function. The result of of really grasping this doctrine of election is that we are to become more patient with people who are hard-hearted. Because we know that the only reason our hearts are not hard to the gospel is because of the grace of God working in us. The function of this doctrine is that we become more understanding and have grace for people who are resistant or who are ignorant because we know the only reason we embrace the gospel and have any knowledge of who God is is because he has melted our resistant hearts. The function of this doctrine is that we become people who seek to bless and pray for our enemies because we know we were an enemy of God until he melted us and changed us. The function of this doctrine is to give us hope, even for the worst cases out there of people that frustrate us to no end, that seem hardened and foolish and wicked. It gives us hope that God can also change people like that because he changed me. God's absolute sovereignty includes his freedom to choose people to save for his own purposes. And the good news here is that anyone who wants to believe in Christ and be forgiven already shows a sign of God's work in their life. You you don't have to hear this today and think, well, what if I'm not chosen? That's not the way it functions. God offers to us his son and what his son has done for us to pay for our sin and to raise us up in a new life. And he says, if anybody wants that life, It is on offer for you today. And if you trust in God's promises in Christ, then you show yourself to be a person that God has set his love upon. And if you find yourself today trusting in Christ, then you rejoice in that knowledge. You give thanks for God's gift in your life and you share that freely with other people because we don't know who's chosen and who's not. It's not up to us to determine that. It's up to us to share this message of salvation that is offered to all. So I want to then turn to um, what is what are God's purposes then in election? Why does he do it this way? Um, how should this doctrine function in our lives? How does it function here in this passage? And I want to just point out the way that God, speaking to Israel, saying, you're my chosen people, how it functions in what he's inviting them into. So the purposes of election in verses 9 and 10 in particular. And the first thing that we see um, here is that election is for service. Election is for service, that God chooses Israel to be a blessing to the world, right? He says to them, you are my servant. And this echoes exactly what God had said to Abraham in the passage we read earlier in Genesis chapter 12, where God says to Abraham, I will bless you and make your name great. Now that by itself sounds like I'm just going to give you a bunch of privilege, but listen what he follows that with. So that you will be a blessing in you. All the families of the earth will be blessed. 
God gives them a land. He promises a land. And that land is at the, kind of at the center of the world at the time. It's at this crossroads because God is going to establish Israel to be a servant so that they might be a witness to who God is in the world. And that's why Israel is called a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You know what priests do? They represent people to God and they represent God to people. They stand as this go-between. And so Israel is literally meant to bring God to the world. And as people join Israel, they turn around and bring the world back to God. They are a kingdom of priests, and they're to be a holy nation. They're supposed to live in righteousness because righteousness is a way of life that brings prosperity to the world. And so they're to live according to God's law to literally be a light to the nations. And that's true. Um, what, what God does with Israel to make them a servant as a blessing to the world, it's true of individuals as well. If you have found your life in God by trusting in Christ and you realize I've been chosen to receive God's grace, then you, you begin to understand that God has made you a servant of God and that you're to join God in his mission in the world and to be an agent of blessing in the world, not someone who just embraces privilege and lives it up selfishly. Election is not a mere privilege. It is a blessing to be a blessing to other people. So first, election is for service. But secondly, election is a comfort to servants overwhelmed by evil. Election is a comfort to servants overwhelmed by evil. We see this in, in verse 10. Uh, election is not meant to breed speculation about who is chosen. We don't know that. But listen how God speaks to them. Fear not, for I am with you. Don't be afraid. I am with you. Don't be dismayed, for I am your God. Now, friends, um, if you haven't experienced this before, you will at some point, um, that sometimes in our lives, we cannot see or feel God's love for us. Sometimes we're in dark seasons where the saving power of God seems absent from our lives. God seems silent to us. He may even appear or feel like he is against us in some way. Um, our enemies seem to triumph over us. Now, there is no doubt this is exactly how Israel felt, right? They literally have been taken off as slaves away from their home in exile, and it looked to them like God had abandoned them and cast them off. And what God says to them is that that is not true. I am still your God. And I am with you in your suffering. He says, I have not left you. Don't be dismayed. I am with you. I have not cast you off. And so the way the election is functioning in this passage is um, as a comfort to those who are prone to despair. He's saying, I'm with you. Right? Suffering is hard enough as it is, but part of what makes suffering so unbearable is the loneliness that comes with suffering. And if we isolate ourselves, it's, it's even worse, isn't it? And what God says here um, is, I see you, I am with you in what you're going through. Right? Um, I, I think about when great tragedies take place, um, th those who love those who are experiencing tragedy, they, they move toward those people even when they don't know what to do to help, just to say, you're not, I'm here, I'm with you. I don't know what we're going to do about this, but I'm here, right? Uh, I think uh, I've seen videos of like when there are earthquakes and people are trapped under rubble, right? And can you just imagine what that would be like to have a building collapse on you and you're stuck and you can't move and you're probably hurt and you're sitting there wondering, am I going to make it through this, right? And um, and often what the, the people who are coming to help are doing is trying to call out, 
to let those people know that they are not alone, that there are people on the scene that are there, that they're with you, and that they're there to help, right? Because if somebody begins to despair that they are trapped so deep no one will ever find them, then they will likely give up even, even quicker. And so that's, that's sort of what I see God doing here is saying, uh, I, I am with you. I've chosen you. I've not abandoned you. I am with you. That is how this is supposed to function in our lives. Election is the promise of God's nearness to us. That no matter what suffering we might go through, God has not abandoned us. He cannot abandon us because he set his love on us and he will raise us up on the last day. He will rescue us in due time. And then thirdly, election assures and encourages those who are suffering to persevere. That's sort of tied into what I was just saying, but it's, it's a slightly different point here. He says in verse 10, I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Um, believe it or not, I've been to the gym before, and um, sometimes when I'm trying to lift um, some weight that's that's kind of at, when I'm really tired or maybe I'm lifting the max amount I can, you 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 push against the bar and, and you're giving everything you've got and it's not moving. Have you ever experienced that? It's like, I don't know how I can be pushing with so much force and it's just standing still, right? Um, and that may be happens to me more than you. But um, you, know, you know that if that goes on too long, you just have to give up, right? Because you're giving it everything you got and eventually it's going nowhere. So eventually it's only going to come down on you. Um, but if you have a spotter there who's, who's going to help you um, if you fail or maybe even before you fail, then you can, you can kind of keep pushing um, with all your might much longer, right? And, and it's also true in life that when you're going through hard things, if you think that you've got to get through it on your own, there's sort of a limit to how long you can, you can keep pushing through that hard thing. Um, but what God is saying here is that he is going to strengthen his people. He is going to help them. He is going to uphold them. And so as they're going through this hard thing, it, it's easy to get to a place where they feel like, I can't make this. But he's saying, no, I'm going to sustain you. I'm going to get you through this. And so they can continue to push through that hard suffering. And so it's God's way of saying, um, you know, take courage, keep pressing on. I'm going to uphold you with my righteous right hand. That, that, the righteous arm is, is the arm where you would wield a weapon. It's the, the arm of, of being a warrior. And what God is saying is, is that I'm going to be this strong warrior to deliver you, and I'm going to do it righteously. It's not going to be oppressive. My, my work for you is going to be good. I'm going to deliver you. And so knowledge of election is meant to enable us to press on amidst suffering in confidence that God is going to help us through. And this this actually can build resilience in your life. And that's something we desperately need in a time when um, we have a hard time dealing with any suffering. We, we live in such luxury and comfort and life is so easy for us that any hard thing in our life, we just sort of, it's very easy to just throw up our hands and despair. But when you go through hard things and you make it through that and you see the way that God worked in that, the next time you face something hard, you go, ah, I've been through this sort of thing before. I know that I can make it through this. I know that God will sustain me. And so you have more strength that next time to press through it. And that's part of what election is meant to do. If you know that you're God's chosen people, if you know that you belong to God and that he's with you and that he will uphold you and strengthen you and help you, then you can keep pushing through hard circumstances, walking with God, trusting in him, loving those around you. And you, you don't have to get overcome by fear and dismay 
and despair. Now, friends, all of this might seem uh, pretty terrible to you. I don't know how many questions I've gotten today, but it might seem all very terrible. Uh, but we have to remember that God freely chose to suffer with and for us. He, he doesn't just choose people uh, willy-nilly, I'm going to give you this, I'm going to give you this. He chose to enter into creation and to suffer the most horrific tragedy and give up his life on a cross, right? Jesus is, friends, the, the chosen one. He's the one that God has elected to bear the judgment of God in order to bring life to his chosen people. And on the cross, Jesus was cast off. He was abandoned. He experienced deep despair and dismay because when he cried out, he heard no answer to get relief from his suffering. In his hour of need, the Father did not uphold him. And he suffered for us and gave up his life so that we could live. And so that's uh, redemption is in him, the, the, the chosen one of God. We put our faith in him, we're forgiven, and we can be confident that we will be rescued if we put our faith in him and believe in him. And we take that then and offer it to all people. So if you don't believe this today, I want to be clear that this is on offer to you, that whatever um, you have done in your life, um, whatever you feel stuck in, whatever uh, you feel like has screwed you up, whether it's your choices or what people have done to you, um, redemption, freedom, cleansing, forgiveness is offered to you in Christ's name. That's what God chose him to do. And if you see that that's life-giving and you want that, then, then you throw yourself wholly upon him and you can hear this and say, ah, God is saying that I belong to him. He's chosen me to rescue me from um, all that I've done and all that's been done to me. So I want us to think about uh, election as we go from this place as something that's supposed to breed um, humility in us, service, courage, perseverance. Not pride, not, not uh, self-righteousness, not this sense of look how smart we are. We, we know this really difficult, complicated doctrine. It's supposed to bring humility. Now, as I said earlier, you may have a lot of questions about it. Please text them in or you can come talk to me afterwards and we can talk through it some more. But um, the function of this doctrine is to make us more beautiful people, as is all doctrine. And I think it has the, the real um, power to do that. If you really grasp what this is saying, it's grace all the way down. As we go to this um, table, um, this is a place where God upholds us and strengthens us and helps us. Uh, because in this meal, God is saying to us that he is with us, right? That, that as we gather around this table and God displays his promises to us, he is present here and we join him in this feast. And those promises go deep down into us as we partake in faith. And so I want to invite you in a moment to come and to eat and drink, trusting in God's promises, knowing that he has not abandoned us. Let's pray together.